forgiven. Amen. A powerful thing, forgiveness. Well, speaking of powerful things, we're going to talk about powerful things this morning. Let me pose a question to you before we get started, just to get the wheels turning. If God gave you the gift of performing one miracle in your lifetime, if he if he gave you power and he gave you the choice to do one miracle in your lifetime, what would you do and how would you go about it? What would it look like to do that miracle? Can you imagine just having one miracle in one lifetime and having to wonder, when do I use it? I've already got one. But then also, how would I do it? Would I make a big deal out of it? Would, would it be in secret? I know it's kind of an impossible question to ask, but it, it gets our minds thinking about power and it gets our minds thinking about miracles and all that is entailed in that. This morning, we're going to look at what I've entitled the sermon down the mountain because we looked at chapters five through seven in the book of Matthew and the sermon on the mountain. But now that sermon in the form of Christ comes down the mountain and all of the beautiful characteristics and attributes that Jesus taught and preached, we are now going to see in action as he makes his way down. So we'll be looking at chapters 8 and 9 for the next several Sundays because in Matthew's gospel they really go together, not necessarily in chronological order, but he, he arranges his material. And there's actually a pattern that emerges when you look at these two chapters. And what he does is he, he presents the events of three miracles... And then two events of um, the cost of discipleship. What's it mean to be a disciple? Two teachings on that. So you have three miracles, two teachings on discipleship, three miracles, then two teachings on discipleship, and then another three miracles. And so there's this pattern here. So that's what we're going to be looking at for the next several Sundays is uh, the miracles that Jesus performed and their significance and their meaning. But also we're going to be looking at discipleship and what is it and how costly is it? And what does Jesus mean by being a disciple? And is, is Jesus as desperate for disciples as we are in these teachings? So that's where we're headed. But I think since we're going to be looking at so many miracles in the days to come, what I want to do this morning is just kind of stand back and and get a big picture of what miracles are all about. Because I love the vivid details that the Gospels give us about miracles. And miracles are exciting. I mean, you get to that part in the Gospel or in the Bible, it's a whole lot more interesting than Deuteronomy, and Numbers, and the Law, where you, you're just in the story and you picture yourself there with what Jesus is doing. But, but why did Jesus perform these miracles? Why did Jesus demonstrate his power to these particular people in this and in this particular way, because with all of that power that Jesus has. He seems to have his own style, if you will, in manifesting it, if you had power, how would you manifest it? What would your style be, so to speak? There's actually a reason for the way Jesus performs his miracles and why he performs them. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. But what I want to do is go ahead and read the first 15 verses of chapter 8 in Matthew so we can read the miracles, we can read what Jesus does, and it, and it gives us a context to work off of. But we're not going to actually look at these miracles till next time. 
So verse 1, chapter 8. When he came down the mountain, there's the sermon, down the mountain. Great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying, paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come. And he comes and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus heals many. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. Power. Power is an invigorating thing to have that ability. On a smaller scale, I remember just to tell my age, I actually remember when they came out with remote controls for the TV. Up until that time, you had to get off the couch or the chair, walk all the way over to the TV, turn the knob or push the button to change the channel or even the volume. Then they came out with a remote control and it's this little device and you put it in your hand and you just push a button and you command the TV to do what you want it to do. And it does it every time. And I remember as a, a young person feeling power behind this remote control because I was in control. I could push a button and make something do that I wanted it to do. It was a fascinating device. It's old school now. Who feels power with that? What kind of things make you feel powerful? Just, just get a, give us a little taste. Powers are cool and supernatural powers, I think, are even cooler. And mankind, of course, has always had a fascination with power. We always have longed for it. We always wanted it for good reasons, for bad reasons. Every culture has its legends. It's stories about people who have done incredible things, sometimes even supernatural things, anywhere from Robin Hood to King Arthur to Paul Bunyan, all the way up to our cultural phenomenon of superheroes. Every culture needs its heroes. 
Our culture is, in, is fatu, infatuated with superheroes these days. They storm the movie theaters and they break records, many of them, because of how entertaining they are and fascinating they are. And I happen to be a big fan of most of them. I don't like it when they, uh, they turn bad and start fighting each other. It messes with my head because they're supposed to all be good. And I say there's nothing. It's just not. Nah. But anyway, I certainly enjoy being entertained by them. You have the Avengers. You have the Justice League. And they all, they all possess their powers for different reasons. Um, some because they're from another planet like Superman. And it happens to work out well for him. Some because they're a god from another universe like Thor. Or some because just of a kind of a freak accident like Spider-Man. But they, they, they have their own powers and they use them in different ways. Or some who wouldn't want to have the golden lasso that you could put on someone and they have to tell you the truth. Wouldn't that work out wonderful? How many times have you looked somebody in the eye like your kids? Okay, who ate the cookie? Or to your spouse. It's, it's a power. It's an awesome thing or, or really just, I mean, probably not right, but I just like the idea of being able to beat up anybody at any time I wanted to, no matter how big they were. You don't get picked on and I know it's terrible, but it's cool on TV anyway. But the very, the very idea I think of power, the very idea that, hey, there's something out there. Or especially if you don't have a power or you just feel small and weak. To, to know that there's something out there big and powerful that actually cares about you and will come to your rescue. Maybe I don't have the power. I don't have the muscles, but I know somebody that does. And the fact that they exist can bring us and does bring mankind tremendous hope and assurance. So where or how does Jesus fit into all this world of superheroes? I mean, talk about power. He has as much, no, he has even more power, and this is in real life, than any superhero. And yet we read the scripture, God's revelation, the historical account, and there is definitely something different in Jesus than what we find in most of our legends or certainly our superheroes that we watch on the big screen. I mean, Jesus doesn't put himself out there in the public eye. Matter of fact, sometimes he even says, don't even tell anybody what just happened. I mean, something supernatural, but I don't want you to share it. I, I don't want this one to go public at this time. He doesn't leave some kind of mark like Zorro so that everybody knows, hey, that was me. I get credit for this. He just works differently. He doesn't wear a cape. He doesn't even wear any kind of suit. You wouldn't even know the difference between Jesus and any other common man of his age. Very, very common. Did not stand out at all. But he's very different in a lot of ways. And this is on purpose. He operates differently because he has something very specific in mind when he manifests his power and in the way he manifests it. 
because of the person he is. It's not to show off. It's not to entertain. I want to just look at three reasons why Jesus performs miracles this morning. And first of all, uh, they attest to his identity or you could say they prove who he is. And that's one of the reasons he manifests his power. So when Jesus comes on the scene, he begins his ministry. And, you know, we've been looking at Matthew. He didn't begin it right away. And he was he was in waiting. He was preparing. And finally, he began his public ministry. And he does not come on the scene saying, I'm doing something new. I'm a new God. I'm a new kid on the block. I have a whole new system, a whole new way of doing things. He comes in line with what's already in progress. And he comes specifically because God the Father, the only true God, who is does reign and rule over all things, spoke into humanity after he created it, and he made certain promises that certain things would happen in certain ways, and he made the promise that he's going to send a king, a messiah, a prophet, a rescuer, a savior into the world to save man from his helpless state of sin. And so things were already predicted. And so Jesus performs his miracles in a way that people will make the connection. The world will make the connection. Anybody that cares anything to know about God and his 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 plan, they'll see that this is the man that that God promised to send because he's doing the things and he's doing them in the way that God said they would happen. He is the savior. So he wants to show the world that I am a part of what's already in existence. Now, things do change because I'm a I'm the new covenant part of this. So things take a turn in God's economy with Christ for sure. But he is fitting into something that already exists. And so there's in that sense, his miracles are very specific. They're not just at a whim. They serve a specific uh, reason. So he doesn't drive up in his Jesus mobile and save the day when you think it would have been a good time for him to show up in his Jesus mobile and save the day. Um, he just doesn't work that way. Another reason for his miracles is that they are like a, a prelude or an allude. They allude to the direction that this king is taking things. They allude to the direction that God has the world directed to or going towards. Jesus is taking things in a very specific direction. So they not only attest to the fact that Jesus is God, but they attest to the to, to what kind of God Jesus is. In other words, they show what He's about. Well, they show what he likes. They show what he doesn't like. They show what he's for. They show what he is against. And that's why Jesus doesn't just fly to the nearest disaster of a falling high rise building and hold it up safely until everybody exits the building and then lets it crumble. Or he doesn't hover above some of our cities with the greatest crime rate, just waiting to to launch down or jump down or swing down to stop some kind of heinous crime. 
He fights evil, but not in that way. He does good, but in a different way. He stops crime, but it's not his style to to come sweeping down like a caped hero. He could certainly snap his fingers and remove a mountain or blast a road right down the center of it. I mean, uh, he heaped the waters up, the Red Sea, and all of his people just walked right on dry land. He can do those things, and there are times he does, but Jesus doesn't snap fingers and clap hands for a reason. B.B. Warfield, the theologian, says whenever he went, and talking about doing good. So what kind of good does Jesus do? What ways does he use his power? He says wherever he went, he brought a blessing. We greatly underestimate his beneficent activity as he went about. Think about what Jesus did. Feeding the hungry, healing the sick and the blind and the deaf, liberating the oppressed. Raising the dead and, as Luke said, going everywhere, doing good. These are the kind of things that Jesus, in his plan, used his powers to accomplish. These aren't always the things that you read about in the superhero books or in the legends. His agenda is different. Certain kinds of miracles and certain kinds of ways to purposely change the direction of the world. That's his agenda. It's not just to fight evil and crime. It's to literally change the entire direction of all things to the conformity of Christ. And so his miracles serve to restore the created order. There's something behind them. As a matter of fact, if you think about it, Our fallen humanity and the way things are now really is the only normal that we have known. It's our natural. This is just the way the world works. It's the way human nature is. But in the big picture of things, there's nothing natural about it at all. It's very unnatural. It's unnatural to live the kind of lives that we're living. It's unnatural to have to to see people die. It's unnatural to watch suffering. It's unnatural to have to see people starving to death and To die on their beds and to be diseased and burdened with their own sin and the sins of others and just natural calamities. I know that's our normal and our natural, but that's very unnatural in light of the world and the universe that God originally created. And what Jesus is doing with his powers is he's changing the whole course of what we think is natural and he's bringing it back into conformity with what we would consider as supernatural. Psalm 96, 11 through 13 says, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And then the Apostle Paul Tells us that all the creation just moans and groans, waiting for things to be set back right. Beautiful metaphors here. And Jesus is doing that, changing the whole course of creation. He, he, he's, he's slowly 
slower than we, he would, we would like him to. And Hebrews says, we're still under the burden because it hasn't completely been, been lifted yet. But he is slowly lifting the burdens of the curse and the fall that we are under. And his miracles serve that purpose because they're pointing in the direction of restoration and in the direction of redemption. So all of these miracles really are a foretaste of where this new king or this promised king is taking everything. He's taking everything back to the way God created them. Of course, technically, they'll be even better. But he's taking them back. By way of application, uh, C.S. Lewis calls Christianity a fighting religion. And he doesn't mean it in the way that we, th- we look at violence on TV today. It's a fighting religion. And you think about the way Jesus fights evil. His style, so to speak. C.S. Lewis says it's a fighting religion because we're striving to conform to the image of a fighting God. When we see cancer or a slum, we say that ought not to be. And we do what we can. In fact, Jesus actually says in John 14, 12, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the father. The the application is that as a believer, as a disciple of Christ, we, too, are in in dude with the power to fight against evil and should have a desire to fight against the injustices and evils. Christianity is a fighting religion to do something about that which ought not be. If God reigns, if this King Jesus, Jesus is King in Matthew, if he reigns and rules in our in our hearts, he reigns and rules over all the earth, then we want to no longer be a part of the problem, but begin to be a part of God's solution to restoring and redeeming the world. To be a servant in that area by God's grace and by God's power. I think a lot of times when you get to this passage and you read, you'll do greater things than Jesus. Sometimes uh, some scholars say that means that you can expect a common disciple to do greater miracles than Jesus. I don't care for that interpretation. I think all it does is put 99.9% of believers on a guilt trip. Why can't I do the miracles that Jesus was doing? But I think what he means there is, of course, and and then he says, I'm going to the Father. The idea is I'm going to be gone. But as you preach the gospel, as you become a light and salt in the earth and people surrender their hearts to me, the power of the kingdom goes out in every individual where Jesus was limited to one place and one time. Now we have the power of the gospel liberating people all over the world. Jesus did not do that. He was confined to one place. And ultimately, that's what God wants to see as the world is transformed. I remember that um, in The Hobbit, there was a a place, at least in the movie, I can't remember in the book because I watch the movies and I don't go back and read the books like I used to because now they have them on movies. But there was a place where Gandalf, and he's in in that elfin place, uh, I forget the name of it, 
Um, and the dwarves are on their mission to get the mountain back. But he says, Saruman, who is the head wizard, says, Saruman believes that it takes great power. Only great power can fight against evil. But I believe it's the little things. It's the little acts of kindness that can fight against evil. And of course, here's the hobbit. The most unlikeliness of creatures to have any big part to play in saving Middle Earth. But there's power even in the small things. It's not just about big manifestations. Jesus saying, let the children come to me. Giving a child a hug is a powerful thing. One little act of kindness is a powerful thing that can have ripple effects and change generations, and we know it does, for good or evil. And the special offering music, think about, I thought about forgiveness. How powerful is it for you to tell someone who has asked, I forgive you. You know what it's like to live under the bondage of unforgiveness. Do you know how miserable it is to want someone to be restored? To want to be reconciled? To not have this dark cloud hanging over you? To not have to live in the grief and the shame and constant uh, ugliness and messiness of the offense that you put out there? And we can, that's power. We can hold and dangle things Choking rights, remember the, the, the illustration, choking rights over people and just keep our hands on their throats because of the offense that they've given us. And yet to be granted freedom and to say, you can go, I no longer hold this against you. Do you understand how freeing that is? That one little act can, can recalibrate the course of somebody's life. Of course, there are books that are written about it. The little things can be so powerful. Over 80% of the world's hospitals, medical centers, are Christian-based. Think about all of the suffering that is alleviated because of this act. Because of the inspiration to do something good. The, the inspiration to say, that ought not be. And to volunteer or to employ yourself in a certain occupation that helps alleviate the pain and the suffering of the world for the glory of Christ. Think about all the comfort, all the support, all the prayer that goes into just that one profession. Many hospitals have their own chaplains. Not all Christian, but many of them have Christian chaplains. Things that are, are very, at our very fingertips. The natural, the supernatural, all the big things and the little things, they're all in motion, playing huge parts in the kingdom of God. So, yeah, a miracle is incredible, but just loving your neighbor, just feeling loved and appreciated is a power that changes people's lives. So these miracles point to who Jesus really is. It's part of God's plan. He's fulfilling prophecy. And then they, they, they're a prelude or they allude to 
the direction that all of the universe is on. And it's according to God's plan. And he's going to restore things, renew things, bring them back to their beauty, their holiness and their righteousness. And then lastly, they serve as an archetype or it's a model. It's a pattern of how Jesus will restore things. Notice he doesn't. He's very calculated in the way he is restoring things. He's not whimsical. He doesn't just use his power any way he so desires or in a proud, arrogant way or a showy way. He has a a style, for lack of better words, of ruling. He has a style of, of manifesting his powers. And it's not like the hype that we see. Or that we may even, if we chose or if we had the power to do, say, three miracles. Let's go from one to three. How would we do a Would we make it a big show? Ladies and gentlemen, I give to you the one and only miracle worker. Something different with Jesus. I mean, he didn't even wear a tight outfit so that his bulging muscles were prominent. No fireworks, no announcements. They don't serve his purpose. Has nothing to do with his mission. We looked at Matthew 4 when Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil. And we looked at the difference between tempting and testing. But do you recall the, what exactly it was or the, or the way that Satan wanted to cause Jesus to stumble? What was the big temptation? It had to do with his powers. You're you're a you're all powerful, Jesus. And you're hungry. You got all this power and you're going to sit there and suffer and starve. All you have to do is look at that rock, snap your finger, speak to it, think a thought, blink your eyes, whatever it takes. And you can have bread. It's a temptation to use his power in a way that is not within the mission or the confines of. God's big plan. Just use it for yourself. If you got powers, if you had powers, would you go hungry? Doesn't make sense that Jesus with all these powers is going hungry, does it? Wave your hand. Do something. And then he takes him to the pinnacle and says, throw yourself off this high public place so that God's angels can come. You can have this soft landing. People will see it. You'll be famous. They'll know how powerful you you are. They will stand in awe of you. It's that temptation of fame and fortune. It's a temptation to use even God-given powers in the wrong way for the wrong reason that's outside of the mission of God. This is very calculated. This is a huge temptation. Of course, the biggest temptation was to do all of that, get all the fame and fortune without going to the cross. Without having to suffer at all. Jesus overcame that. And so Jesus fights this temptation with, you know, it's, it's not by bread alone. There's more to life than being famous. There's more to life than just exercising your powers and looking good and people being amazed at you. Life is bigger than that. God's plan is bigger than that. I'm going to run the course. I'm going to be powerful in the sense of saying no to things. 
or be powerful in the way I glorify my heavenly Father. That, that trumps an opportunity to do a miracle. There's a side, I guess you might even say, of power that's barely used. It's barely used maybe because it's so difficult. And that's the power of restraint. That's the power of not using the powers you have just because you have them. It's interesting that there's a sense in which Satan wants Jesus to, okay, this is just me, but Satan wants Jesus to put his superhero uniform on so he can be recognized and, uh, and adored in that way. And yet Jesus said, actually, I left my superhero uniform in heaven and I came down here, I took it off, and I came down here to earth without it. Paul puts it like this in Philippians, he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here's Satan saying, fill yourself, glorify yourself, go all out. Anything good about yourself that you can highlight and draw attention to yourself, glory in yourself, revel in yourself. And here's Jesus saying, actually, I just emptied all of that out. And voluntarily, I subject myself to the weakness. I subject myself to the one who's being bullied by the person that's bigger and stronger. To the one who's being mocked and lied against as one who has persuasive powers and knowledge that could put anybody in their place in any argument at any time. The incarnation. Isn't the incarnation... The big becoming so small and frail and weak, an incredible miracle right up there with the resurrection. What Jesus did was powerful. And along with those acts of humility and sacrifice, that's how the world was changed. Along with the healing of the sick. See, there's there's this pattern here. That Jesus has. It's, a, it's a, a pattern of where the world is taking him. It's a pattern of how God goes about bringing restoration and salvation. And it's through humility. It's through weakness. It's through sacrifice. It's through suffering. That's the pattern that he has set. That's how he ultimately restores all things. You know that the Jews were expecting, and I can't blame them in a, lot of, in a lot of ways, they're expecting this figure that's promised in the Scripture to come like your typical incredible general and king, and he's got all these powers, and he's going to squash the Greco-Roman world, all of our enemies. He's going to come in here. He's going he's to wield his sword. Nobody can match him. He's going to give commands. He's going to arrange his men in such a way. We're going to crush the enemy, Satan included, if they believed in him at that time. Some did and some didn't. He's going to crush them all. 
and we're just going to sing our praise to him. We're going to put him up on our shoulders or give him a procession. procession. We're going to put the crown upon his head. He's the king. He conquered every animal. We're with him. Every animal. Every enemy. Sorry, animal activists. He conquered every enemy. And that didn't happen and it just, they missed it. Because what crown did he wear? Crown of thorns. And where did they put this king? Put him on a cross. He put himself on a cross. They put him on a cross. He's a public spectacle now, not of greatness, but of weakness. If you are God, get yourself off of there. Climb down. What is wrong with you? You're not fitting in to my mindset of what a God should be, of what a king and what a savior should be. They didn't realize that it was that very act that was bringing about the salvation and the redemption of the world. That was the fulfillment of the promise. This this idea of weakness, strength and weakness, the I guess maybe the other side of power that's hardly ever even used. God's way. And that's how the world has to be regained. So. Jesus comes, and rather than taking and usurping, he's giving. He's pouring himself out. And there's this exchange. I'll take your weakness and give you my strength. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that by his poverty might, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So now it's even getting more different or more unusual if you think about somebody with so much power. Not only does he use it in different ways, but then he he takes your weakness and your sickness and your disease on himself and then gives you in exchange his righteousness and his power. This emptying, this pouring out. How bizarre is that? You remember, um, I know you remember because you remember all my sermons and every word. But a New Year's message was about be of good cheer. Be of good courage. And one of the examples was in Matthew chapter 9 and the um, King James Version. It It was the woman with the issue of blood and she'd been sick for years. I mean, just... Perpetual bleeding. You got all this sympathy for you. You think about people who have chronic illnesses. And this this lady, desperate, comes to Jesus in Matthew's account. He says to her, daughter, be of good comfort, be of good cheer. Thy faith has made thee well. But listen to Luke's account of the same thing in chapter 8. So there's a woman. She had a discharge of blood for 12 years. She spent... All of her living on physicians, she couldn't be healed by anybody. She came up behind him, touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? Now, when all denied it, wasn't me. You ever done that? Wasn't me. Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you. They're pressing in on you. In other words, how in the world are we ever going to know who actually touched you? There's just too many people. Jesus said, 
Someone touched me. How did he know? For I perceive that power has gone out from me. Man. I don't understand it all. But this lady, sneaky, desperate, is a man of power. Maybe if I just, I'm not going to look at him face to face. Maybe it's too shameful. Maybe I, I don't want to, other people, I don't, but I, I just want to get close enough to just touch. Then nobody will ever notice. He won't even notice. And yet Jesus did notice in, in the divine mystery of things, there was some kind of exchange that just took place between this woman's sickness that could not be healed and the power of Jesus. That's phenomenal. It, it, it was a pouring out and a pouring in. And what it does is point to the archetype, and that is the way that Jesus saves. He saves by pouring himself out so that we can be strong. He saves by the great exchange of taking all of our sins upon himself and taking them to the place of punishment so that we can be free, so that we can relate to God as a forgiven human being, so that we can be clothed in the righteousness of Christ and get all of the benefits of the Son of God. That exchange. That, that's the way he saves. It doesn't sound very heroic. But it is heroic. And that's his style. Maybe it didn't gain great throngs of admirers. Matter of fact, many people left him when they found out. When we look at the discipleship. You're going to see many people left him. When the fireworks died out. So our sickness, the only way he can save us without killing us is by taking our sickness on himself, on himself. Jesus did not come to bring judgment. He came to bear judgment. So that's how he deals with the problems. That's how he deals with the curse and the evil. All the fall. All the curse that came upon man back in Genesis. All that vile stuff that we hate. And all that it deserves. The penalty. He takes it on himself. And he takes it to the cross. And he willingly, voluntarily dies and gives his life. So that we can be set free. And that's how we receive this gift of salvation is also by, isn't, don't we have to get low and humble ourselves and be weak and say, yeah, I've, I've blown it. And I have no platform to stand on. I have nothing to offer you. The only thing I can do to stand before you is plead for your mercy. And that's how the gate of salvation is open through our humility, through our act of repentance and by acknowledging his sacrifice and his gift. And what do we do as disciples? Then we pour ourselves out. We give. We give our money. We give our time. We give our prayers. We bake pies. We put our arms around people. We do what we need to do. In the name of Christ. And it makes a difference. 
As a matter of fact, it changes the course of humanity. A man by the name, a scholar by the name of Rodney Stark wrote some good books about Christianity. One of them was The Rise of Christianity. And he asked or kind of answers the question, how, how did Christianity become so popular? How did it grow so quickly in su- under such unlikely conditions? What was it about it? Because um, there was during this time, he tells one of the reasons there were plagues in the Greco-Roman world. You know, plagues, they just wipe towns and villages out. The first one happened the year A.D. 165, and literally people were just falling in the streets. They were falling wherever they were, getting sick and dying. And most people just got tired or didn't even try to take care of them. They just tried to stay alive, fend for themselves. They headed for the hills. But there was one group of people that didn't head for the hills. There was one group of people that stuck it out, and they were the Christians. And he says the doctors were quite incapable of treating the disease. The people became afraid to visit anyone. And as a result, thousands of people died with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which all of the inhabitants perished through lack of any attention. The bodies of the dying were heaped one on top of another. And half-dead creatures could be seen staggering about in the streets. What a nightmare. The catastrophe was so overwhelming that men became indifferent to every rule of morality. Many pushed sufferers away, even their dearest, throwing, often throwing them into the road before they were dead, hoping to avert the contagion. Not so the Christians. And here's what happened. He says, most Christians in the plague showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and only thinking of others. Headless or heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attended to their every need, ministering to them in Christ, and many departed their life serenely happy, for they were infected by their neighbors and cheerfully accepted their pains. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of elders, many in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves. And died in their steed. That's a pattern. That's that's a style of life, if you will. A style of living. And it's patterned after our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pouring ourselves out so that others can live. So that others can hear the good news. So that others can be set free from the oppression. And set free from sin, it's, it's that power in sacrifice. It's an application. Maybe God will permit us that one miracle. Maybe you've already had it. Maybe you have been used by God to perform more than one miracle, many miracles. Supernatural. But all of us have equal power in different ways to affect. And carry along the course of God's plan. If we have Christ, we have all that we need. May God bless the preaching of his word. And I thought in light of that, it would be good to just.